Hello, you're listening to Which Moving Pictures Move Us, and I'm your host, Emma Bulsner. It's that time of the year again, so the next couple of films we will be doing on this show will revolve around the Christmas season. Today we'll be talking about The Man Who Invented Christmas, starring Dan Stevens, Christopher Plummer, and Jonathan Price. And with me virtually is my good friend, Hannah. Hello, hello! You started off... The Christmas season theme last year, so I had to have you start it off again this love, year. Love, love a good tradition. And I believe that was Dash and Lily at this point last year. It was. It got canceled and, now. <laughs> oh, I know. I'm sad. I'm a little sad about it, but it's fine. But, I mean, hey, you were saying a, a few weeks ago that that was, like, the most listened to episode from the past year. So, I mean, clearly only good things happen when I talk about holiday things on this podcast. <laughs> clearly this will be the next top podcast episode. <laughs> <laughs> so, this movie is a twist on the classic Christmas Carol story and focuses on Charles Dickens, played by Dan Stevens, who is in financial trouble and struggling to write a novel about Christmas. He soon finds inspiration from the people around him and begins to conjure up characters like Ebenezer Scrooge, played by Christopher Plummer, and Tiny Tim. However, he has less than six weeks to write this new book, or else he won't be able to pay his financial debts before Christmas. So Hannah, what do we think of Bharat Naluri's The Man Who Invented Christmas? I feel like I have a good version of a complicated relationship with this movie. Because <laughs> the more I've thought about it, the more I'm like, did that work or do I just appreciate it because it's Christmas? Um, <laughs> I, I really enjoyed Dan Stevens' performance. He's always a delight, no matter what he's doing. I, I'm, of course, familiar with him from Downton Abbey days uh, before the yes, obligatory season. Matthew! Before... <laughs> Before the obligatory season three massacre, if you know, you know. Um, and I, I'm, I've always been a fan of his work. And so to see him uh, do a different take on a period piece, I think, was really, really interesting. And I liked his take on Dickens. I liked the energy that he brought to Because when you think of Dickens, you often think of this, like, old man who's just, like, sitting and writing. But this Dickens had a lot of energy. And that might be because he was, you know, so young, uh, younger than people think Dickens was at the time, I think. Um, but I think he did, that lends itself to Dan Stevens' performance and the script as well. The script had a lot of energy happening. Um, I really appreciate it as somebody who is a English teacher, pre-service pre English teacher, uh, and somebody who is very fascinated with the writer's process and how writers come up with characters I really enjoyed the visualization of that and how they decided to portray the taking of inspiration from the people around him and all of those aspects. It was, it was really interesting. And I said it before we started recording, but this movie has a lot of whimsy to it that I don't think people would expect from like Charles Dickens writing a Christmas carol. I don't think they would expect the amount of whimsy and sort of fun that comes with this type of story like it's still dark in a couple places because we are dealing with victorian england it's not exactly a cheery place to be um but the parts that work really work yeah i totally agree you've made some excellent points i'm trying to like pick at each one you've said here but um <laughs> <laughs> i want to just point out that I, I totally agree i mean dickens was only 31 when he wrote a Christmas Carol, and he was 27 when he wrote Oliver Twist, so this is a couple years after um, his big success with Twist, which they kind of touch on a bit at the beginning of the movie and how he had yeah. three flops. Um, but I think people always see Dickens as this stuffy old man with a probably one of those, I don't know, the sideburns and weird-looking beards behind yeah. a desk. And I, yeah. I agree with you. Dan Stevens brought this young energy and, and vibe to it which uh, I mean he's good because he can he can do period pieces really well like we said with Downton Abbey and um some other stuff but he also is able to be in modern films as well and I, I like that he's able to segue and bring kind of that modern feel to a period uh, movie 
Yeah. I mean, the only sort of media interpretations I'm really familiar with when it comes to Dickens is um, there is an episode in season one of Doctor Who, uh, starting from the 2005 reboot. This is going to really label me as a nerd here. (laughs) Um, uh, But there's an episode um, where they go back to sort of late Victorian England, and it's with, like, Christopher Eccleston's doctor, um, and Charles Dickens is there, and part of the thing is they, like, quote-unquote, host a seance, and it takes place around Christmas. Um, so it's very much, like, sort of taking cues from Christmas Carol but putting a Doctor Who twist on it. And they've also done some, like, Christmas Carol interpretations on the show later with more, quote-unquote, Scrooge characters, which have also been very good. Um, but that was the they, they had Dickens in that episode from season one, which was which was interesting because he was older there, and um, the other interpretation in media that I have seen of Charles Dickens is when um, when when Gonzo was Charles Dickens, quote unquote, in yeah. uh, Muppets Christmas Carol. Uh, I've had the Muppets on the mind recently. Uh, I've, I've, I recorded an episode of uh, of my radio show with my partner Christina. Subtle plug. Um, today and there was uh, there was some there was there was some uh, muppet conversations happening over there so muppets have been on the brain today um <laughs> yeah so i it was really interesting to see dickens in this sort of different light of being young being a young father um having to deal with his own parents and his own uh stuff revolving around his parents and how he grew up um, yeah. It was interesting to see him sort of grapple with that as a younger man. Yeah, and oh my gosh, the amount of kids he had and everyone was just a freeloader on his income. Oh my god. I was like, I was like, I, I, I understand that, that birth control is not a thing in Victoria <laughs> and England. I understand it. It's like very much not a thing. And I understand, like... The, the actress who played his wife was very pretty and she did a very good job with the little material she was given. But my guy, you, you, that's five. You are on child number five coming in. I don't know how many you ended up having. I hope you stopped at five because clearly you oh, needed. Oh, no. I oh, he didn't? Facts. Oh, <laughs> they had 10 kids all together. I was going to guess 10. I was going to guess. Jeez, they topped, halfway through they the topped, roster. Uh, they topped horny Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. <laughs> yeah, because Queen, Queen V and Prince Albert had nine. Yeah. Um, wow. Okay. See, again, birth control wasn't a thing. Um, <laughs> I will say, though, hats off to the actors playing the kids because, again, they were adorable. Uh, and they did a very good job of selling the, 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 the periodness. Um, yeah. But yeah, everybody was just like, I mean, his wife and his kids, like, they're his responsibility. They could not help it. Um, And I mean, the people that Mr. Dickens was paying to get this book off the ground, like, he was digging his own hole there. Yeah. But his parents. I have issues with his parents. Me too. (laughs) Now, I do not know if this was the situation in real life or if it was heightened for dramatic purposes in this movie but, I mean, Jonathan Price does a very good job as coming off of this, like, freeloader dad. I mean, his first scene is him, like, auto, like selling things that Charles has signed, like, cop- like his personal copy of Oliver Twist that Charles signed um, just to make a few quick bucks. But also, my guy, he's your son. You're supposed to be the one providing for him. You're the one who left him at the workhouse and didn't come back for him, you idiot. Yeah. Stop it. No, and bad. and <laughs> we find out later in the film in that climactic scene that Charles is giving him an allowance, and he has his he gave him a house, and he's still yeah. mooching off his son and buying gifts like he's buying gifts for himself in like a brand new suit. And I'm thinking, well, who who is paying for that suit? Oh wait, your son. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's interesting because. Um, I think you can draw certain parallels between Scrooge and Dickens, uh, Dickens at this point in his career. And I think you see an interesting element of Scrooge is frugal because he not only wants to be, but it's because it's how he was raised. 
Um, he was he was raised very poor, if I remember correctly. Um, however, and, and that turned him very very cold as as he got older. But Dickens is frugal out of necessity. He doesn't have the money to be just throwing around, and the only reason he is throwing it around on uh, Christmas Carol is because he believes so much in this story, even though commercially the three stories he wrote after Oliver Twist were considered flops, though I'm sure that yeah. that was not the case after Christmas Carol blew up and then people, especially over in America, because we see at the beginning how important the American audience is to liter- literature at this time um, and how big supporters they are of it. I'm sure American audiences then like went back through his quote-unquote back catalog, as we would put it now, and read the other books and helped him a little bit that way as well, but... Like, he doesn't have the money to be throwing around. He doesn't have the resources to just be like, okay, yeah, Dad, sure. Go buy yourself a new suit. Buy five new suits. Buy more Buy these birds. things for my kids. <laughs> buy more birds. What was the point of the bird except that? for a fun little for a fun little button on the end of the movie? I don't understand the point of the bird. <laughs> Me neither. And then I came back again at the end, and I was like, wait, What? <laughs> I was like, the bird's still here? It hasn't just flown away at this point? <laughs> or Who's died because it bird? hasn't been fed? Who's feeding it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, he's distributing his own book. He's paying for it all just because he wants to release it by Christmas Eve. And yes. um, yeah, it, it's just amazing. So he has to write this story for those that may not have watched it and is listening to this. Um, it's six weeks before he has six weeks to write it. Um, and it's, and that's a deadline. needs to be published. That a, that's a deadline and a half for like a book. Six I don't weeks? even know. No, I've, how I've you write, how you manually write a book in like a year, let alone six weeks. Like the manually writing gets yeah. me. I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. Now I've done NaNoWriMo, which is National Novel Writing Month for those who don't know. Um, it's where you are supposed to quote unquote write a novel or if you're working on something, you know, it's 50,000 words in a month. Um, and it's, it, I've done it twice before. I've gotten there both times somehow by the seat of wow. my pants. Um, and I mean, that was in high school when I somehow had more free time. Uh, maybe I'll go back to it at some point. I don't know. Anyway, um, tangent being that I was typing all of that. And I was able to, you know, return to it very easily. I was emailing the file back and forth to myself constantly. Yeah. At least the first time I did it. The second time I did it, I was just doing it over Google Docs so I could just access it anywhere. Um, and so that was easy enough. But to manually write a book that ended up being about 100 or so pages in six weeks. Know. And then getting it to the printers just on time. Like, I cannot imagine how tired his wrists must have been. Like, I did a lot of typing today to get the last of my assignments done for the semester, and my wrist is tired. Yes. I know, and then think about how they had to, like, save paper and write really small on the columns, and then, like, the ink running out. Oh, my the God. Ink. The fact that he's writing all this with, like, an ink pen or quill or something. Like, I'm like, how... It's a skill that I think sadly is lost, but I mean, I guess when it's out of necessity. And then the worst part is he doesn't even have his own office space to write. So he has to have this done in six weeks and he can't even get like a time alone without being interrupted by his crazy family. It's just he's insanity. Always, he's always being interrupted. Well, I mean, I guess it's what you get when you've got two maids, mom, dad, wife, four kids, a bird. That's what you get when you don't do the pull-out method, dude. Like <laughs> <laughs> Charles, buddy, we gotta have a talk. It might not be uh, birth control pills, but there's another method, dude. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's always another option, my guy. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> what I really liked about this movie was that they actually showed the process behind writing a novel and I haven't done as much writing as you have because wow I feel intimidated by how much writing you have done but I (laughs) took a creative writing class in university and you know we had to like get these short stories done and 
I do remember how important it was to get the right name for my character. And I really love that scene. That was probably my favorite scene when he's trying to come up with who Ebenezer Scrooge is and how it just, you know, getting the name makes the character come to life. And I love how once he said the name, Christopher Plummer appears. I thought that was uh, really well yeah. done. Yeah, and he keeps going through all these different variations and saying them out loud. I find that helps me when, I, when I've when i done the writing that I've done, um, saying a bunch of names out loud and testing how it sounds when I say it. Like, that helps me a lot. So it was neat to see that reflected in this. But you hear him get so close to Scrooge so many times. And, of course, the character is iconic. It's part of our cultural lexicon at this point. Uh, and you, he gets so close to Scrooge, and you just want to shake him by the shoulders and say, Scrooge, his name is Scrooge. But you can't do that, obviously, because yeah. uh, this is a fictional movie, and he's going to get there eventually. We know he's going to get there. Um, and even even with um, having Christopher Plummer play that embodiment of Scrooge, I think, was a really interesting choice, and I like it a lot. Um, but even when it comes later to the Ghost of Christmas Past, and it looks like the 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 new maid that just got hired on, um, yeah. and they're played the the characters that are inspired by the people in his life. They are played by the same actors, which is so much fun, and it's so cool to see how they've translated themselves into Dickens's head and his imagination and this story that he's trying to horridly craft. It's really interesting to see, especially when his um, his sister comes to visit with her husband and they have their son with them and that family we yeah. see is the inspiration behind the Cratchits and specifically Bob, Emily, and Tiny Tim. The, as soon as I saw that crutch, I was like, there's Tiny Tim. There yeah. he is. There he is. There's my sweet little boy. <laughs> and it's really cool that we as the audience already know who these people are, but we see his mind kind of start having an inspiration for these characters and seeing them come to life. And I think yes. that is really cool because there's so many Christmas Carol versions. Um, I don't know which one is your particular favorite, but everyone has a Muppets. favorite and everyone knows the story. Muppets. It's Muppets. <laughs> I have that movie almost memorized, I think, at this point. I've watched it so many times. I love Gonzo. Sorry, this is going to turn into a, another Muppet <laughs> tangent, but I love Gonzo and Rizzo as our narrators so much. Michael Caine is a phenomenal Scrooge. Casting Kermit and Robin as Bob and Tiny Tim is inspired casting. All the new puppets they brought out for the movie are so cool. The way that they yeah. shot it was really great. The fact that it was the first Muppet movie they made after Jim Henson died makes it so special and the music in it is so good it's my favorite one and even even at the beginning of the movie before the characters take shape there are certain lines that are said by the people in in Scrooge's life um I believe it was like um one of the lines that was like um uh, there there are so many people around um oh um we better um They'd yeah. better hurry up and die to decrease the surplus population decrease, or something yeah. like that. Uh, and if it was, if I had my way, um, every man would go, uh, every man with Merry Christmas on his lips would um, yeah. would die with a stake of holly through his heart. It's a, it's a, and a poor excuse to pick a man's pocket every 25th of December. That's the main one I was yeah, going to get one. at. I was, I was going through Michael Caine's <laughs> big Scrooge monologue from the beginning of Muppet's Christmas Carol in my head. Yeah, um, the... The, the day of, like, not getting Christmas Day off. Yeah, pickpocketing, that one. Yes, yes, yeah. And you see those lines, and those lines, again, are so iconic. Seeing those little nuggets that you know are going to be in the book are, is so interesting. And it really, I think, it does a really great job of showing how yeah. artists create their work and how they take elements from their real life and transpose it into these fictional versions of our world or fictional worlds entirely. Yeah. Are there no workhouses? Are there no jails? Uh, yeah, that guy. I love that whole that scene and and um, how authors use people around them as inspiration. I think that was really cool because I've seen author like movies before. Um, I've watched Becoming Jane, which is um, based off of. Uh, Jane, Jane Austen, Austen yeah, and, and Hathaway. Hathaway is Jane Austen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I really I, I, liked I've that. Oh, sorry. I really liked I've the movie, but what I think is a big flaw of the movie is they it focuses mostly on her love life with 
Tom LaFroy, who is played by James McAvoy, and they have really great chemistry together, and, and it's really good, but then at the end of the movie, all of a sudden, she's, like, written Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility, and I was like, wait a second, like, when did she do this? They spent no time on that, and also, how yeah, did she come up? Writing. Show us, like, I, I assume, like, they kind of implied that Eleanor and Marianne's relationship was her relationship with Cassandra, her sister, um, who she lived with, but there was no moment of her writing, or it's just a rush thing at the end, like a, in Little Women as well, where she's like transcribing and writing in the last 15 minutes of the movie, and then all of a sudden the book has appeared. And I just, I like that this movie kind of spent time of how difficult it is. It doesn't just come naturally, and, and all of a sudden there's a book. Yeah. Well, I mean, to be fair, in the case of uh, of Little Women, because I've been thinking about this it's a lot, because based it's going to be off on Netflix of the very siblings, soon. Yeah. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be on Netflix very soon, and I'm very excited about it. Um, Joe spe- we do see Joe writing quite a bit, um, but it's just not the, the, the book that ends up being the book. And That's true. She struggles, and she, she struggles for a long time after, after Beth's death trying to write again because that crucial part of her life was taken away, and then she gets a spark of inspiration from her conversation with Marnie and then it just all falls into place. So it's, 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 it's not that it's, we don't ever see her writing. I think the issue that I take with some of these author movies and these movies that feature writers is that they, again, they don't spend enough time on the writing to establish that they are writers. Like when you're watching becoming Jane, I haven't seen it, but when you're, when you're watching it, you know, it's about Jane Austen. You know, she's going to be a famous author and you know that she's going to write books. But if they never show that people who somehow don't know who Jane Austen is, will be so thrown because they'll be like, wait, whoa, what do you mean? She wrote books. What do you mean? We never saw her do that. We just saw her have a romance with Regency era, James McAvoy. What are you, what's happening here? I would love to have seen, you know, how she came up with those characters and with those storylines because she herself did not have much experience with love um yeah like and marriage so it it would have been interesting anyway but i do like this movie because it actually does show him writing and you know if i was an author i'd get so annoyed by like how easy they make it look in movies so maybe any authors out there might enjoy the man who invented christmas because it actually shows the struggle (laughs) And I think I think it does a really excellent job too of highlighting that artists struggle with. Okay, I did this one great thing. People are expecting more great things of me, and when I don't deliver what they consider great things, I get yeah. punished for it by lack of finances, no good reviews, and the pressure, the immense, immense pressure to come up with that next great thing. Like, you can, you can sense throughout this movie as Dickens is writing Christmas Carol that this is his last chance. And I think they say it a couple mm-hmm. times before as well uh, at the beginning of the movie. But you can sense, there's a sense of urgency and this sense of almost desperation as he's writing it. You can sense that this is really his, like, last chance. Otherwise, he'll just be seen as a one-off and his family will be destitute and they won't be able to enjoy the lifestyle that they've gotten used to after the resounding success that Christmas Carol was. And I think, I think he, I, I think about the, the fight that he and his wife have towards like the going into the third act of the movie a little bit, because she, she makes an excellent point that, you know, he needs to be there for his family a little bit more. He needs to be a little more present. She doesn't, she feels like she doesn't know who she married anymore. Um, yeah. Or she knows who she married and that's why that, what she takes issue with. But also, lady, you try trying to save your entire family's fortunes by writing a made-up story in six weeks on the world's most stressful deadline possible while also dealing with your parents who have just shown up out of nowhere and are yeah. still mooching off of you. You don't have to, there's there's a side of the story that she wasn't seeing, I think, and I think the script falters a little bit in that regard, because I think they just treat his wife as somebody who is very passive, and who doesn't have a very active role with Charles, besides the child-rearing aspect of it. Um, so I think in that regard, it does a really nice job of showing 
the the struggle of an artist who did something really cool and now people are like what's next and the artist has to go um i'm working on it uh you'll find (laughs) out i think it would have been really cool to make you know the his wife more rounded i mean i don't even remember her her name that's how uh, unmemorable and memorable but like she was just basically dickens wife and i think it would have been cool if they had incorporated a scene where you know she says something and gives him an idea or supports him in some way or you know talks about a kid one of their kids in some way and he's like oh he's gonna write that in or something like that would have been interesting besides her just always whining and then i thought something was gonna happen um she was gonna misinterpret his relationship with um, the Irish nanny, and I thought she was going to think they were having an affair, and I was like, oh, is this going to, like, become really complicated? Because he was using the Irish nanny, um, because she was literate, to help him, you know, read his stories out loud to her, and they would talk about, and she would come up with good ideas, and I was like, oh, is the wife going to think they're having an affair? Yeah. Yeah, exactly, right? Also, another point you made, which was so interesting about how there's these such short deadlines and how, you know, you need to have another book out after you've had this great success, you need the next one, next one. And I think that social construct is still so much in our society with celebrities, you know, famous people, whether they're movie stars or even authors and how, you know, how quickly you can become a has-been with social media now. And that you just need to always have something new out. I mean, the pressure, even back in the mm-hmm. 1840s, you could quickly become, you know, unknown again and, and lose all your money. Yeah, I think I think Charles Dickens at this point in his life would relate to the song Content by Bo Burnham from his special Inside. <laughs> because, because, okay, it's about that struggle of having all of this pressure on you to create something really really cool and putting something out there in the world and hoping that it connects with somebody um side note i found the name of um of dickens's wife um in the movie uh her name is kate apparently (laughs) i never heard them say her name once wow so i was looking up a bit about her but i even forgot to look yeah Catherine dickens that's her name and apparently they separated After all those 10 kids were born, they were married from 1836 to 1858. So I guess 15 years or so later, they divorced after this book was out. Um, And basically, he saw her, he was very mean to her. Um, This is just Wikipedia, so I guess anyone could write this. But apparently he saw her as as an incompetent mother and blamed her for the birth of their 10 children because she was one of 10 kids. <laughs> but that doesn't even make sense. And when that didn't work, he ordered that their bed be separated um, so they couldn't have any more kids. And the marriage finally broke down at near the end of 1858 when she received a bracelet meant for one of his mistresses. <laughs> so awful. She was treated horribly by him. And she was treated horribly by the script. So, yes. I mean, I mean, I feel like, I feel like it's hard to say. Because on the one hand, of course, you want to back up this, this poor lady who married an author and should have somewhat known what she was getting herself into. Um, but, and you, but you want to take her side because he shouldn't have cheated on her to the extent, extent that he did and treated her so terribly but also i think th- there's there's a lot of sides to these stories that we will never know yeah and um we can look at it ob- objectively from a history standpoint of here's what's happened um but unless we w- we somehow managed to talk to the spirits <laughs> of uh, mr and mrs tickens i doubt we would ever get the whole story I know I was thinking about that whole spirits because there's a line in that movie where um, I think one of the people that he's trying to publish the book to, they say how um, at Christmas Eve, the spirits walk with among us. And I was like, isn't that Halloween? But when you think about the whole concept of a Christmas carol, I mean, even when the artist is trying to figure out what a jolly ghost means, 
this story is dark. Like, it is about ghosts and spirits, and it's a Christmas book. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I feel like that must come from some sort of... um, Because it's it's Tara, the new maid, who tells him that initially. Um, Right. And she's Irish. Irish. uh, Yeah, she's Irish. And Ireland, at this point... um, and Scotland to some extent um, as well, did have a lot of still pretty prominent um, uh, pagan traditions or pagan-derived traditions. So I can't help but wonder, uh, I don't know the specifics around the uh, pagan tradition that is Yule at this time of year, um, which is where we get the name Yuletide. Um, But I think it would be uh, interesting to, to see that sort of element of paganism and pagan beliefs around this time of year slip into the cultural zeitgeist of how we associate Christmas with um, with the the life cycle and what happens when we die and like if these spirits if, if these are ghosts in the true sense of the word or if they are simply meant to be spirits of some other kind that are just meant to encapsulate like a certain time, place, feeling, um, or just like vibe in general, I guess, about the whole affair. Uh, yeah. It's it's hard to say, but I think it's an interesting thing to think about, like how her personal beliefs and what she grew up with uh, leaked into this story that has become so well-renowned and so famous and we, that we rev- millions of people revisit every single year. I know. It's, it is pretty crazy. Have you read A Christmas Carol? I have. It was many, 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 many years ago. Uh, my dad has a copy that I borrowed uh, from him. And I was maybe too young to read it because I didn't fully understand the, like, Victorian prose. I think if I returned to it now, I would have a better understanding of what was happening. And I, the only reason I was able to follow what was happening in the story was because I knew... The story. I knew the story beforehand. Yeah. Um... So but so the answer is yes, but it was a very long time ago. <laughs> yeah, I read it. It was funny. In grade 10, uh, my teacher really loved A Christmas Carol, so we read that in English. And then I reread it again, like, first year. And I just I really enjoy it because it's super short. It's basically a novella. Um, but, yeah, there's some moments in the middle where it's just like, what is going on here? Like, this is so, you know, gets off track a bit. But I do enjoy, I think it's a really well-written book. I've never read Oliver Twist or anything like that. Um, So, yeah, I've never read David um, Copperfield, which they also kind of mention near the end of the movie. They they make a little allusion to it, which is really funny. Did you have a favorite scene? Oh, favorite scene. That's hard to pick. I think... I think my favorite scenes are definitely when um, when Dickens is in his office and all the characters are sitting around him, yeah. like, making their little inputs on the story, and Scrooge being like, absolutely not, that's not going to happen. Um, this happened over a few scenes, but when everybody was like, who had read an early version was like, you're not killing Tiny Tim, right? You're not, you're not killing, he's not dead, right? Um, I think it's so interesting, and broke broke my heart every time um to think that like an original version of this tiny tim would just be dead um i know (laughs) um but i think again it comes down to um when we would return to his office after a little bit we would see new characters in there that we'd seen glimpses of in the real life scenes beforehand like like um like the Fezziwigs. The Fezziwigs are the ones that stay in after yes, me. Like we see them the very, mirror. very briefly in the sort of market scene. And then they appear in his office and they're there. And I'm like, oh hey, they mentioned the Fezziwigs earlier. That's cool. I'm sure they didn't the, the those the real life Fezziwigs definitely did not realize that they were in the book. I'm sure that that definitely yeah. did not happen. <laughs> it's not exactly a common name. I know. I love that, you know, when they appeared, there wasn't like a cliche scene where he's talking to one of the characters and someone walks in and is like, who are you talking to? Like, I like that they only appear when he's alone. And I love that 
Scrooge appears usually when he is feeling afraid or um, vulnerable, and yeah. I think that was really cool. Yeah, I know a lot of times authors will use certain characters to work through some of their issues and work through things that they are feeling in a way that fictionalizes it and makes it less scary. Um, and so the, as if we haven't already dived into spoilers enough, um, but uh, towards the end of the movie, there's a scene with uh, Dickens and Scrooge in the workhouse where Mr. Dickens used to work as a child. Uh, and it's sort of like a final sort of confrontation of Dickens facing his fears. And so having Scrooge as a sort of um, manifestation of Dickens's trauma is so interesting. And I think I, I was able to pick up on it because I was an English major. I'm going to be an English teacher. Like I'm, I'm very keyed into analyzing these sort of details. I'm not quite sure if it was picked up on by my parents who watched this movie with me. Hi, mom and dad. Um, I don't <laughs> think if they quite picked up on it the same way that I did. Um, just because they're not used to, I guess, um, watching for those signals like I am, but it was, it was an interesting moment for sure. And I, Scrooge coming up as a, as a manifestation of his trauma, when that's really present in his mind, especially in scenes after he's dealt with his dad is really interesting. Yeah, I agree. Um, I also like that scene. I think that's also the scene I mentioned before when he comes up with the name, but when he wants Scrooge to define what a word means for him, like, what do you think of money? It's security. What do you think of children? They're useless. What do you think of the workhouse? They're useful. I really like that. Yeah. Scrooge as as an antithesis and as a foil to Mr. Dickens, as well as a manifestation of his trauma. I could write a whole paper about that. I won't. (laughs) I've had enough writing papers for a little while. Thank you very much. But I could because there's, I think, a lot of meat in there. Yeah. Oh, I'm so excited now. I'm going to watch, like, other Christmas Carol versions that I've watched when I was a kid or whatever and look for (laughs) different meanings in it because I think rewatching some of these things is really good, too. Absolutely. Um, so he did work in a workhouse, great dad, making him have to fend for himself. So it came around 1822, so he would have been 10 years old. Yeah, 10 years old. And um, he had to work at the Warren's Blacking Warehouse, 10-hour uh, days, and couldn't go to school. And he did this for a few months before his dad was out of jail. So that is awful. No wonder he was able to write Oliver Twist and be able to relate to so many children and poor people. Yes, yeah. And I think I think the reason that those moments in his novels were so impactful is because they came from a personal experience. They came from something that he was so attached to because again it was it was traumatic for him as it would be for any child yeah and but fictionalizing it especially for american audiences that didn't really have this whole workhouse idea as far as i understand it it not only fictionalizes it again in a way that doesn't make it scary but it also humanizes it in a really interesting way because it's not written as this sort of like aloof aristocratic person that's like oh the workhouses well yeah it it brings it brings a real humanity to it like this is a real issue and people are just putting children in there and expecting them to do these things when they are not capable of doing them and it seriously seriously damages them not just physically but also mentally and apparently i my dad was telling me about this that that apparently um christmas carol also really helped uh, impact uh, between Christmas Carol and uh, Oliver Twist, it really helped to make an impact in pushing through um, child labor laws, i.e., don't do it. Um, yeah. <laughs> or, or having yeah. very, a lot more stricter rules surrounding child labor. And so the fact that the, these, these two books, as well as um, uh, you know, his other books, uh, made that level of impact that it made a significant amount of change, I think is so interesting and shows that, you know, books today, 
do pave the way for social change. Absolutely, they do. Uh, there's a reason that books like The Hate You Give have been banned in schools in the States, especially. Um, yeah. They are they're ca- such catalysts for social change. So it's interesting to see that even back in the 1800s, these books that were fi- works of fiction were still such hot button um, still working with such hot button ideas and such pre- ideas that were so present in society at that point that they made change ultimately for the better. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I think these those books back then, um, like we said, Jane Austen and Dickens, especially during such a dark period in England during the Victorian era, they had that impact that that is... I mean, we might see in, like, a hundred years, maybe, if climate change hasn't destroyed everything, um, people will be thinking about all the books from now and thinking how impactful they were. But it is interesting because with Jane Austen, she didn't really know how much of an impact she had on society. She was anonymous when she published her books, and she didn't really become famous until she after death. Whereas at the end of this movie, we find out that so the Christmas Carol was published December 19th, 1843, and by Christmas Eve, all the copies were sold out. I mean, Dickens knew he was popular. Yeah, but it's it's interesting that, you know, he he took such a gamble on this story and people responded in this immense, immense way. It's it's something I, I've I've thought about since I since I watched the movie, the fact that like within within like less than a week the the every yeah. copy that had been printed was sold out so that gamble was worth it but also it was something it wasn't something that was that was like his fellow writers were writing at the time that was very superficial and it was just writing for the sake of writing it was something that really came from his heart which might have been why it was so difficult for him to write because it came from such a personal place yeah, that's true. Ah, that's that's a really good point. Well, I don't have many facts about this movie particularly, but I did look up some of the things around Christmas in the Victorian age. So um, Christmas in the Victorian age really changed after um, Queen Victoria became queen and, and Prince Albert brought some German traditions to England. But before the Victorian era, there were Georgian Christmases. Christmas Day was not a big thing. It was a day to go to church. You usually would go to church on Christmas Eve. Um, But many people still worked on Christmas Day. You didn't really get the day off. Um, Basically, what Christmas was during the Jane Austen era was, you know, big parties, big balls, um family get-togethers, and they usually ran between December 6th, which is St. Nicholas Day, oh, today, till January 6th, uh, till Twelfth Night, and then they Mm. would exchange presents, you know, throughout those days, Um, but the Christmas season really began in England when, and this is kind of accurate to what the, the movie portrayed at the end, but it really became a thing when Prince Albert, um, introduced the Christmas tree in in the UK and you know this idea of having a tree in the living room must have been such a strange idea yeah and they they mentioned they they, they call it by its German name the Tannenbaum the Tannenbaum yes and um it really became popular in 1848 after there was a drawing published in the newspaper of the royal family around the Christmas tree with all their little kids um, decorating the tree and that's when just like nowadays when you know celebrities or royals or whoever do something you really want to get on that trend um, so that was really interesting to learn about yeah. and they would put like obviously candles on the tree and sweets and Which, fruit again, and homemade I, decorations I realize that there's probably lengthy documentation about how much of a fire hazard that was but when, <laughs> you, consider, the when you consider the stone construction as a mostly stone building uh, with a, with <laughs> a tree inside with candles and small children is a <laughs> recipe for disaster and then the candles aren't even, you know, in those old pictures of stuff. Like, they don't even look like they're upright properly. They're, like, dangling off the branch. 
I know. It, I mean, the biggest fire hazard ever. Thanks, Prince Albert. I wonder how many houses burned down. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's it's crazy to think about Christmas without a Christmas tree. I think yes. it's such a big part of Christmas. It's like the main part of decorating the tree and and not having that and just going to a dance just seems like any other month. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I have uh we have our Christmas tree out in the living room. I was going to decorate it tonight, but I couldn't because A, we were recording this, but B, <laughs> because I didn't have any hooks for for the ornaments. Oh. My mom picked up some some secondhand bulbs for me and so I need to go get some hooks later this week. Um or get my brother to pick some up. Um but that's such a huge part of part of the tradition, right? When when Christina and I were in quarantine at this time last year, um we wanted to make sure that the place still felt quite festive, even though both of us were in the midst of finals. Um, so we dug that tree, that very same tree, out of the basement, and we brought it up to the living room, and we decorated it, and we had Christmas stuff on in the background, and it was so lovely, but it's such a huge part of Christmas nowadays, and, like, driving past all the houses and seeing the Christmas tree in the window is so lovely, and it's strange to think about there being a time where that was just a weird German tradition. Woo! Yeah, I know. And it traditionally was only put up on Christmas Eve, which seems very light. That seems um, very last minute, personally. Because it's like you don't even get to enjoy it but <laughs> before having to take it down. But I guess they celebrate it into, like, January. Um, yeah. And well, that's not much time, though. And sometimes trees, especially because they didn't have fake trees at that point, real trees, sometimes it depends on how long they last. Uh, sometimes right. they can last a while. Sometimes they cannot last very long at all. In those fire-burning rooms with, like, the huge fireplace. Fireplaces! Totally dried Again, out and you're going to put the tree right next to it? Good gravy! <laughs> also, the same year as um, The Christmas Carol came out, 1843, Henry Cole invented the first Christmas cards, which is called Victorian Christmas cards, and they mostly had, like, birds on it, robins, and images of children and animals, um, and fairies. So that's really cool that it was the same year as A Christmas Carol. Yeah, those, those old-style drawings are so beautiful. And one of these days, one of these days, um, anybody who knows me personally, stop listening. Um, but I want to, uh, one day I want to like try and find a seller online through Etsy or something like that, um, who does those style drawings and gets Christmas cards with those drawings on them. Cause they're just so beautiful. Um, I, I much prefer that style of Christmas card where it's just like a nice drawing on the outside. that's still very festive. Um, but with, yeah, um, with you know a, a blank on the inside where you can just write a little note. Those are those are my favorites because you just get to, it, you don't have to work around some like cheesy pre-written message. Ah, uh, yeah, and and something that doesn't isn't even meaningful and a filtered image drawing. I hate those. I know. Also, my last fact is that um, Father Christmas really. Santa Claus became a thing in the 1870s in the UK. But he was portrayed... Now, I don't know if um, Dickens can see in the future, but Father Christmas didn't wear a red suit. He wore a green suit and was seen as, like, a very jolly person in a green robe. And that just reminds me of the Christmas present um, ghost. Yeah, I feel like I've heard about that before, but I thought it was a sort of, I thought it was more of like a Coca-Cola branding myth than the, than an actual thing. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, it's really interesting. So, you know, it was a bit off with the uh, tree thing. It became more of a thing with the Christmas tree in the house in 1848. So this movie kind of went ahead a little bit, which is fine. But um, five years. Well, Dickens was allowed... Well, Dickens was was allowed to be a little bit bit eclectic. He was an author, and they were known for being a little bit <laughs> yeah. weird. So should we move on to the final judgment, or do you have anything left you want to say about the movie? Oh, gosh, I think it's time. Okay. 
So did the man in who invented Christmas move you or not? I think it did. I think the more I the more I think about it, the more I mean, I, and I still enjoyed it. I enjoyed it for what it was. But the more I think about it, the more I unpack it. And as I said to my parents, engage with it critically. Um, there, there's more <laughs> to enjoy about the, the ways that it depicted Victorian Christmas and what it was like. Um, but also the, the interesting angles it takes with exploring the, the artist's struggle and how different writers do different things. Um, yeah, there's... There's, there's more to love under the surface than it just being, like, a different take on writing a Christmas Carol story. Yeah, I totally agree with you. It, it moved me, too. There were parts where I was like, you know, this doesn't really fit. Is it going to be my favorite Christmas movie of all time? No, no, not, no. not a chance. <laughs> but I love that it was a refreshing take on the Christmas Carol story because, like we said, there's so many versions and everyone has their personal favorite. And I think this was great that we actually got to see the BTS part of A Christmas Carol and see the workings yeah. behind the characters forming and yeah. even learn a bit about Dickens because, you know, I never saw him as a young person either. I didn't know he was so young when he wrote it. So also the costumes were great. And I loved the way it was filmed kind of like a play a little bit. It gave me play yeah. vibes like theater. Yeah. Didn't get a time. Didn't get enough time to talk about those costumes, but the, yeah. the dress, the the singular dress that Kate wore through most of the movie. Not only do I appreciate her not having a new dress in every scene, yes. because that is just incredibly unrealistic. unrealistic. Yeah. And um, especially if the family's short on finances, she would only have like one nice dress. But the dress she wore not only was very like shape appropriate for the time and like fabric wise pattern wise very appropriate for the time but she just like looked nice in it and they knew they, they dressed her well for it so yeah big applause anyway yeah the costumes were very good and very period accurate which i appreciated and hands down christopher Plummer, you had two really great movies near the end there of your life well done <laughs> yeah very good <laughs> well thank you for coming back for uh the christmas theme this year or no not coming back oh. but thank you for Starting off oh, the of Christmas course. theme this year. Of course. Wouldn't want to do it any other way. <laughs> and I hope you enjoyed listening to the show. And if you have any holiday film recommendations you'd like us to do, you can email me at emmareviewsmovies at gmail.com. And don't forget to click the subscribe button. Thank you for listening. <laughs>